Welcome to the Low Carb Leader Podcast, a podcast focused on optimizing health and performance through a low carb lifestyle. Every episode will bring you a step closer to living an amazing low carb life. Come join us for this exciting journey. And here is your low carb leader and host, Dan Perryman. Hello, and welcome to the Low Carb Leader. I'm your host, Dan Perryman, and you have joined me for episode 28. Today we have Dr. Mark Berger. He is a practicing radiologist, and I have actually coined the phrase low-carb radiologist for him. Mark is a highly educated radiologist. He received his undergraduate degree in biology at Hamline University in St. Paul, Minnesota. He went on to medical school at the University of Minnesota Medical School. He then went on to do his residency at Mayo up in Rochester, Minnesota in diagnostic radiology, and he continued and finished a fellowship at Duke University in abdominal imaging. Dr. Berger also served in the U.S. Navy, and he spent six months in Saudi Arabia during Operation Desert Storm, and he has spent the last 20 years in clinical and diagnostic radiology. So Mark had a life-changing moment as he continued to see people's health deteriorate in the images that he was looking at. He then kind of realized that his own way of living, eating junk food, drinking sodas, was creating some minor health issues for him as well. So this led to a completion of a two-year fellowship in integrative medicine through the University of Arizona in Tucson, followed by certification from the Institute for Integrative Nutrition I actually saw Mark speak at Low Carb Breckenridge, and he presented on visceral fat and imaging and radiology and what the low-carb lifestyle could do. He also discussed a small study that he completed and the positive effects of that. So I interviewed Mark a few weeks ago, and it is a fascinating interview. He is truly committed to helping people become healthier. I know you will enjoy the interview. So Dr. Mark Berger. All right, we have Dr. Mark Berger here today. Welcome, Mark. How are you? Very good. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so you are calling in from where? I am, well, currently I'm sitting in River Falls, Wisconsin, but it's across the river from Minnesota where I uh, live in a suburb outside of St. Paul. Oh, gotcha. So it's uh, early March here and today was like 65 degrees here. How is it up there? Well, we had a storm blow through here the last couple of days. We had winds of about up to 60 miles an hour, so actually a lot of trees had uh, fallen down. We had some really unseasonably warm weather earlier, but now we're into the 20s and 30s, so kind of back to reality for March. Well, but it's probably beautiful up there during the spring, right? It is. Yeah, usually it's, uh, you know, spring's, yeah, we're, you know, as long as the snow, once the snow is gone and all the salt is off the road, it gets better. <laughs> Yeah, that's what we say. Is once once July hits for you, it's a it's a great <laughs> spring. <laughs> yeah. There, there you go. Yeah. So, uh, why don't you uh, introduce yourself to our listeners? Kind of go back to uh, why you decided to go into medicine and what path you took. Sure. Well, kind of way back, I actually started off um, after uh, my medical school. Um, I was in the service for um, several years. Um, worked with the Marines and uh, went to a couple of deployments, one of which was the Gulf War way back when. Um, but afterwards, I became interested in radiology and did my uh, training at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota and then a fellowship in body imaging at uh, Duke University. And so I've spent the last 20 years or so doing basically a lot of diagnostic imaging procedures uh, with imaging guidance. 
and you know, during that time frame, and I think even more recently, just became quite uh, amazed at the changes in uh, diseases that I was seeing on imaging that all were pretty much self-inflicted. And when I say that, these are things that really are under people's control, whether it was uh, you know emphysema from smoking or from excessive visceral fat or fatty liver disease or premature osteoarthritis or early um, atrophy in the brain because of uh, drug or alcohol abuse. So many things that you know were um, avoidable. And so I really became curious as to you know how over just such a short period of time these changes were showing up in the images I was seeing. And at the same time, I had some health issues. I had headaches my whole life and actually lived on a very poor diet, uh, much to the chagrin of my wife. And uh, so I finally took her advice and I came off of all the junk, all the sugar and processed grains and um, wheat. I got rid of the soda pop and I had some dramatic changes in my life. I, my headaches after 20 years finally went away. Uh, my energy level went up. I slept better and I lost 15 pounds. And I said, man, you know, this was dramatic. And, you know, if I could share kind of the newfound passion I have with what I was seeing of imaging, I thought maybe this was a tool I could use to kind of help educate other people to make these tough changes in their lives using imaging as a, as kind of a guidepost and a motivating and educational tool to have them better understand what was going on in their health. So that's kind of how I got to where I am. I know everybody likes to hear kind of the personal side. So you mentioned you were in the Marines. What year were you in? Yeah, so I was in the Navy, and I was in there from um, 89 to 92, and I was a medical officer um, assigned to the Marines. Then the Marines hate to admit it, but they're actually a department of the Navy. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was in the Navy at the same exact time. That's why, where were you stationed at? And I was stationed in Kaneohe in Hawaii um, on a Marine base there, and uh, shortly after I got there, I spent six months in Okinawa and then got back and then when the uh, Gulf War broke out, we were deployed to Saudi Arabia in August of that year. And then we were there until about March. So about seven months um, uh, over in uh, Saudi Arabia, pretty close to uh, the uh, Kuwait border. Yeah, I was stationed in Guam and Japan and the Philippines. And then during this time, I was stationed in uh, San Diego. And actually, a lot of people volunteered to go over to the Gulf War. We had some some people from our squadron go over on deployment. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I know when you say the Gulf War, you have to classify it as the one a long time ago. That's, that's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. But, you know, and I'm sure maybe you felt the same way at the time. There was a lot of unpleasantness. But now in retrospect, looking back, it was something that, you know, I feel very you know, privileged and proud to have been a part of. And, you know, I grew a lot during that uh, period of my life. Yeah. Thanks for your service there. Definitely. For the listeners, I don't know if they understand all the training that you go through to become a radiologist. It's four years of undergraduate, four years of medical school, and you typically do a five-year residency. Is that correct? Yes. Usually what they typically require is a year internship, kind of more in general, general medicine or even general surgery. And then following that internship is a four-year uh, radiology residency program. And so at the end of that, you're a trained radiologist, a diagnostic radiologist, but most people now go on to do fellowship training. And so there are various subspecialists within radiology, whether it's neuroradiology or body imaging or interventional radiologists. Those all require at least a year or two additional training after, after the residency. Yeah, so you too can be a radiologist in only 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. 
my, my son is interested in going into medicine. I said, well, pal, you can't think of it that way. It's just got to be, you know, a year at a time. You got to do it in small increments. Otherwise, it seems like it's uh, undoable. Yeah, that's that's funny. So you talked about how you changed your life a little bit around sugar and grains and bad food. And talk about what you ate before you started eating in a new way. And then what do you eat now? Sure. Well, you know, it's interesting. You know, it gets almost no emphasis in medical school about the value of nutrition and food. And even to this day, the curriculum, I think maybe some medical schools have a week or two tops, but it really is not given very much importance. And I think that's why a lot of us in the medical realm historically have not given it much thought. And so I just say, you know, classic um, you know, fast food from all the hamburger dives you can imagine. You know, I drink a lot of soda pop, a lot of candy bars, chips. I mean, you name it. Um, my wife sometimes kids me. She goes, well, you were the guy who drank the Pepsi through the red licorice straw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was that bad. And, you know, I, fortunately, I didn't ever have a real issue with my weight. And so that wasn't a big concern. But I clearly had other problems with uh, headaches and fatigue and poor sleep, and I just kind of never put two and two together. And unfortunately, my fortunately for me, my wife always had a tremendously healthy diet and very way into uh, whole foods and sustainability before it was in vogue. And you know, so I, she used to comment, "How can you be in medicine and be a doctor and have such a poor, you know, quality diet?" And I said, uh, "You know, I just really didn't pay much attention." Until kind of this coming together of, you know, what I was seeing on imaging and then her encouragement over this long time period to change my diet. And finally, I, you know, I relented. I said, OK, I'll give it a try. And it just really just turned my life around. You know, I couldn't imagine living without sugar and all the junk that I historically do. And now it's just I mean, I don't miss it. Hardly at all. Once in a while, you know, I have a, some chocolate, you know, with dessert. But for the most part, I find that, you know, the further I get away from that, I, I really don't miss it much. And now I'm eating great food. You know, she makes wonderful meals. When we go out, we try to really focus on ordering things that, you know, are, uh, are sustainable, hopefully that are vocal or organic. And um, now again, you know, and it's a little more expensive perhaps doing it that way. But on the flip side, you know, what are the expensive chronic medical bills by the, the sickness that eating all this lousy food, um, you know, results in? So, that's where I was, and that's kind of where I am. People who eat a lot of sugar, they don't understand how people cannot eat sugar. Once you stop eating sugar, I really don't have any urges whatsoever to eat candy. And then it's, or anything, because it's so sweet at this point. Because, you know, I, I share with my friends that if I eat a handful of blueberries, you know, I'm like, oh my goodness, I am just cheating. These things are so sweet. And it completely changes your, your palate completely. I would totally agree. And the and your comment on the sweetness of things is so true because what you used to really almost not think anything of now is just this blast of sweet, sweet sugar. And it's like, oh, my gosh, that's just brutal. And so, uh, yeah, I, I would totally agree with that statement. So as a radiologist, you've been practicing for how long? Well, uh, I graduated from my residency in 1996. So, you know, 20 plus years. So 20 plus years. So what have you seen in 20 years, the changes in the population and the level of obesity and the diseases that you see. Talk a sure. little bit about that. Well, you know, I, I mean, we see it all around us. So, you know, it's no uh, surprise that, you know, at, adipose tissue 
you know, is the big thing, you know, but it clearly is where is that adipose tissue? And that kind of is an important finding in that the fat that's located deep within our bellies that we call visceral fat is much more metabolically active and has a much more risk profile than subcutaneous fat or that found underneath the skin. Um, the skin fat is, uh, doesn't have the same profile. You know, it, it's not healthy in that it, you know, it weighs you down and it's tougher on your joints. But from a metabolic standpoint, that visceral fat should really be considered an endocrine organ. And it secretes all sorts of hormones and inflammatory cytokines that can uh, really result in an increased risk for many diseases, including insulin resistance and cardiovascular disease. So I think, you know, this adiposity clearly is a biggie. And then the effect that that adiposity can have on the liver. And we see fatty livers now, I mean, many, many times every day. And it used to be where, gosh, I could go a month and maybe you saw a couple of them. And most of those were secondary to people who were alcoholics or taking steroids. But now almost all of these people are on a high sugar diet, and particularly a high fructose diet, which is very toxic to the liver. So I think those two big things are, are those are two primary ones. I think cardiovascular disease that we see on imaging is a big one, too. We see plaque in the coronary arteries on a routine basis and plaque elsewhere in the aorta and the iliac arteries, the renal arteries and the mesenteric arteries, those vessels that supply blood to our gut. You know, those are you know extensive atherosclerotic disease. And then you're seeing in younger people, too, um, premature arthritis. You know, they're too heavy and they're starting to put too much stress on their joints. So, you know, I could keep going on, but I think those are probably, you know, the, some of the biggies that we see. But uh, it's just dramatic kind of, you know, organ and systemic and, you know, throughout our bodies is we're just seeing disease that is vastly more prevalent than we saw or I saw at least uh, early on in my career. So, Mark, for those who haven't went through 15 years of medical school and residency, what does a fatty liver mean? Why, why does that create problems for you? Sure. Well, normally, you know, the liver is our primary detoxification organ, and the function of those liver cells, or we call them hepatocytes, are critical in processing the foods and the toxins that we ingest, converting them into um, molecules that are then water-soluble and can be excreted either into uh, the bile uh, and then into the stool or into the bloodstream and then the urine for excretion. What happens was when these liver cells are exposed to excess sugar, um, what it first does is it converts it to uh, glycogen. And glycogen is the storage form of energy that we can utilize, whether it's in our liver or in our muscle. But once you've filled up your glycogen stores, the only thing the liver can do at that point is to start filling up its own uh, cells with fat or something called triglycerides. And once those are full, then what it does is uh, takes those triglycerides and sends them out in the bloodstream where they're then deposited in our, our fatty tissue. So you've gone from a normal liver to a liver that has a lot of glycogen, and once you've reached the capacity, now you start filling up those liver cells with fat or triglycerides, and then ultimately it sends out any excess sugar that you then take onto these carrier molecules and then uh, onto our storage sites. So once those liver cells then start becoming filled with this triglyceride or fat, now you've just altered their function. And now they can't process and uh, detoxify the way they're supposed to. And many people then start are on this slow road downhill to 
the next disease entity called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, and that's just a kind of fancy term for those liver cells becoming inflamed. And there's a subset of people then will ultimately develop cirrhosis, and that's becoming more and more of a cause now for end-stage liver disease. Uh, it used to be hepatitis and other causes. Now it's too much fructose. So it's dramatic what is uh, going on with the liver, and uh, much of that is uh, related to just too much uh, sugar and fructose. Yeah, that's incredible. So what used to be reserved for alcoholics in rare conditions is now pretty much mainstream. Very much so. And yeah, it, it is truly dramatic. I have this conversation with my colleagues. I mean, it's almost every other case you are seeing a fatty liver. I mean, it's just dramatic. Wow. Talk a little bit more about the difference between subcutaneous and visceral fat. And why is visceral fat so dangerous? You talked a little bit about the hormone functions and the hormone changes, but kind of walk us through that. Yeah. Well, you know, they're still working out the, all the physiology, um, kind of why this happens. But uh, one of the things that, or I should say a couple of hormones that are instrumental in, the, in this deposition is number one, insulin, and number two is cortisol. And again, insulin is critical for many things, but too much insulin gets to be a problem. And the big problem with insulin is the most lipogenic hormone we have, meaning it's impossible to burn stored fat with insulin in your bloodstream. And the reason insulin is in your bloodstream is because you have sugar in your bloodstream and the body just cannot tolerate excessive sugar. So every time you take a sugared meal, insulin is secreted in order to take that sugar from the bloodstream and deposit it in the cells for energy. Well, as this happens over and over again and there's too much sugar, what happens is these cells then become what's called insulin resistant. And so they're not as responsive to the effects of insulin, so insulin levels then have to go up. And so this is a vicious cycle of too much sugar and too much insulin. And again, as insulin stays and increases in your bloodstream and throughout your body, you're unable to burn fat. Well, then that fat has to be stored somewhere, and it's stored both in that visceral compartment and the subcutaneous compartment. So that's insulin. Cortisone is a kind of a stress hormone that goes up, uh, produced by primarily our adrenal glands when we are stressed. And it's been shown that actually this cortisol results in redistribution of where the fat is. And it takes it kind of from the subcutaneous department compartment and brings it into this visceral compartment, the fat that surrounds our organs, the liver and the kidneys and our bowel. And once that deposited, that fat also has its own receptors and ability to make active cortisone. So it's this kind of vicious cycle of too much insulin and too much cortisol and where the fat ends up being deposited. And it's that central fat that has been shown to have this uh, increased uh, risk for not only this fatty liver we talked about, but cardiovascular disease and heart attacks. So kind of a long-winded explanation, but I think much of the physiology comes down to what's happening with insulin and what's happening with cortisol. And what drives insulin up? It's sugar. It's sugar. Yeah, sugar, yeah. all the stuff you shouldn't be eating, right? Yeah, I mean, it is. You know, and, um, you know, fat and protein have a much, much milder effect on the pancreas, which is where that insulin is secreted from. So it really comes down to if you control your sugar intake, you can really control the insulin. And once you get insulin down, now you can start burning fat. And that's the key. That truly is the key. You got to get that insulin down to a level where it allows you to start uh, what's called beta oxidation. You can start breaking down your stored fat and using the fat for energy rather than the sugar for energy. 
How does the constant intake of sugar affect your pancreas? All I know is that you definitely don't want anything happening to your pancreas. From a, no. Yeah, that, that's from a cancer standpoint or anything right. else. Right. In image, we used to say, yeah, don't piss off your pancreas because <laughs> yeah. plain pancreas is not a happy pancreas. And yeah, and it's been interesting. You know, we talked about fat deposition in the liver. We just discussed, well, you can actually have fat deposition in the pancreas. And we see this on CT where the nice, normal fat, uh, pancreatic tissue is now interspersed with little fat globules. That is actually a reversible condition if you decrease the um, sugar. But within the pancreas itself are something called beta cells. And those beta cells are actually what uh, secrete insulin. And, you know, this whole concept of insulin or beta cell resistance comes up when there's just too much sugar in the bloodstream. So I think you can, you know, be nice to your pancreas, uh, number one, by, uh, you know, avoiding high sugar. And number two, you can avoid high alcohol. Because historically, pancreatitis was something that typically was caused by, you know, excess alcohol intake. And we still do see that. But um, we're seeing more and more, I think, diseased pancreas from uh, etiologies other than, you know, alcohol use. Yeah, that's incredible, just the impact of sugar on your body. You talked a little bit about a study that you completed. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, again, I was trying to figure out a way where um, people could actually see the impact of their diet on their organs. And so what I did was I enlisted 30 people who followed a higher fat a kind of a Mediterranean-style diet, which has been shown one of the most successful diets in decreasing cardiovascular and chronic disease risk. And so we put them on a moderate-fat diet. We did imaging with MRI, uh, both at baseline and then at 3, 6, and 12 months. These people met with a nutritionist to kind of get the exact you know, detail of the diet that they were uh, going to be following. They kept a food journal, and then we did kind of track a little bit of their activity level with the pedometer. And what we did then was followed them over the course of the year and, um, you know, recorded, you know, in detail their uh, dietary intake and see how that affected not only what we were seeing on MRI, but we also did blood testing throughout that, those same periods so we could, we could watch what was happening with the triglycerides and HDL and inflammatory markers such as C-reactive protein and homocysteine. And we could see and correlate the imaging findings with their biometrics, their bio, these biomarkers, and uh, really get a good sense of, you know, what was happening on a physiologic standpoint. What were the key findings? And so we, unfortunately, only nine of the 30 completed uh, the study, which goes to show how difficult it truly is to kind of change your diet and lifestyle. But the motivated people uh, actually did quite well. Out of the nine that finished, we had five that had dramatic changes not only in completely reversing their hepatic steatosis or this liver fat, but uh, improving their visceral fat as well as their uh, blood markers. In a couple of cases in particular, um, one individual lost 35% of their visceral fat. They completely reversed their liver fat and every one of their uh, blood panel markers, including this, the triglyceride and the HDL, LDL to a lesser degree, um, and then the inflammatory markers all improved and then stayed improved over the course of the 12 months. When we sat down with these individuals and actually showed them, you know, this is what you did. This is reversible. You are empowered to be able to make these critical changes in your health, not only on imaging, but on the, you know, the blood markers, which is kind of proving what we're seeing. It was 
you know, very inspiring for these people. Uh, a couple of people were in shock that they actually, you know, had really control over the ability to do that in their bodies. And I think we're just um, very keen and appreciative that they got to be able to sit down, have these images explained to them, and then use that to kind of go forward and motivate them to keep on with their healthy diet. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Do you think that most physicians, just traditional physicians, not the functional medicine, because they think they think a little bit different, but do you think most uh, conventional or traditional physicians think that type two diabetes is reversible? You know, I, just speaking for I guess my tribe, you know, or the, I guess the people I shouldn't say that the, my previous tribe. Let me put it that way. Um, no, I think they think diabetes is not a reversible condition. You know, once you have diabetes, you're a diabetic for life. And, um, you know, maybe changing your diet uh, can have some effect. But, you know, you're looking really at, you know, long-term medication. And, you know, you start off with, you know, non-insulin type uh, sugar-lowering agents. And if those don't work, you know, ultimately you're on, you know, stronger drugs and usually a combination of drugs. And insulin ends up being one of them, you know, not infrequently. So I think the conventional opinion would be that, you know, this is not reversible and that, um, you know, what you can do is just kind of hopefully uh, mitigate the advancement of the disease. But there's a lot of research around changing the diet, going to a higher fat, low carb diet completely reverses a lot of the diabetes, type two diabetes. That's right. And and it's a good distinction because then the type one diabetics, of course, those are, that's an autoimmune condition and they've had enough of their pancreas destroyed where they just aren't producing insulin at all. So they, they do need insulin replacement. But in the type 2 diabetics, it's the exact opposite. Instead of not producing enough, they're producing way too much. You know, it's been shown in many studies that if you can, you know, bring down the sugar and bring up the fat and kind of go against conventional guidelines, which, which I think have just been so destructive over the past half century that somehow a low-fat diet was healthy for us, and the whole cholesterol and saturated fat myth that somehow those were the instigators of cardiovascular disease and the twin demons and had to actually be avoided at all costs, you know, that that is just being dispelled time and time again over many, many studies. And it's surprisingly that, it, you know, it still gets the uh, press that it does. But, you know, there's a lot of powerful factors out there um, that don't want things to change. Um, you know, the drug manufacturers, uh, they don't want it to change. And the food manufacturers are selling a lot of goods and processed food. You'd rather not believe that people want people to stay unhealthy. But, you know, I think it's going to be a slow process for people to kind of uh, re realize that the information we've gotten was not very good. And that diabetes, particularly type 2, is a condition where if you take these steps, for some people, it is a reversible condition. And it's certainly worth a try. Because the only other option is to go on the drug bandwagon for life. Diet is certainly worth worth the effort uh, to, to see how that impacts you. Everybody's biochemistry is a little bit different. We talk about biochemical individuality, which I think is an important concept. So, you know, what works for you may not work for the, somebody else, but you will not know that unless you try it. And so I think uh, certainly uh, those people who are struggling with uh, this condition, uh, well worth the try. Yeah, and most of the people listening to this podcast are probably low carbers anyway, so they're <laughs> they're part of the conspiracy theory that we are, yeah. you know. You know, I've been in healthcare for 20 years and this isn't a dig on healthcare because I highly respect physicians and I highly respect hospitals and what they do. 
and pharmaceutical companies. I mean, they have great they have great drugs and they save a lot of lives. But it is big, big business. You know, hospitals are paid based on procedures. You know, it's kind of changing a little bit. And then the food manufacturers are huge corporations. As business people, it's their job to sell their product. It doesn't stretch the imagination to think that people are not going to support that changing your diet can reverse diabetes. You know, to me, it's very simple. This is big business and it's against mainstream and it's going to take a long time. And, you know, you work with other physicians that don't believe in this. And I know a lot of people who don't believe in it. And it's a difficult movement to get people to change their diets because it, it is very easy to take a pill. Indeed. And that and that is exactly right. And, you know, and people have to be mentally ready, though, to make a change because you can tell, give them all the information in the world. But if they are not prepared to receive it, you know, it, it's just not going to happen. And, you know, I think many of us become frustrated. And they said, if you would only just listen to what I am saying, I could make you healthy. But they don't necessarily want to hear it at that stage in their life. And it's only, you know, unfortunately, when they get to the point they're so sick that they're running out of options that they finally come to the table and say, gee, now no, what can you do for me? So, you know, I, I, this is going to be a grassroots thing, as I think we're all understanding, because there's so much money at the top. But, you know, if you can get these people to understand somehow, some way that, you know, if you make these changes early on enough in this disease process, this stuff is reversible. You can change it. You can be empowered to do it. You know, once you get to end stage cirrhosis, the game is over. So it's uh, you, you just hope that, you know, people can see the light before then. But, you know, they're just not getting the right information frequently. Even those who are inclined to do the right thing are just sometimes given 180 degrees the wrong information. I mean, it's just so sad to think about that. But that in reality is what's happening when you have these people being told to go on a low fat diet and somehow that's going to help their health situation. They don't got a chance. So, you know, it's up to guys, I think, like you and me and people listening in that, you know, it's uh, kind of our our calling. And, you know, it's a mission that, I you know, I'm embracing. And I think we need to spread the word one person at a time and one podcast at a time and hopefully make a difference. Yeah, I have a couple of people at work that have went on the low carb and they asked me a lot of questions and one has lost 31 pounds and the other one's lost 13. And what's funny, though, is a friend of mine was like just a kind of a sugar addict and he's really cut out the sugar. And now every time he goes and has like pizza or something, he always comes back to me the next day saying, I felt terrible. The other one I know says the same thing. She was like, I had a cheat meal because, you know, she was losing a lot of weight. And, you know, that's good sometimes. And I'm like, you might want to keep it clean because she said she went out and ate something and felt terrible the next day. And so you get on this kind of healthy, high fat, low carb diet. And I wouldn't even say diet lifestyle. When you do go out and eat something, you're like the next day, you're just like, I call it the carb hangover. It's just Mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're foggy. You don't feel good. So I actually kind of cut all of that out just because I feel better not doing it. Do you have cheat meals at all anymore? You know, well, you know, on, on occasion, sure. I'm not a purist. Um, you know, I try to do it as much as I can. And the, yeah, when I cheat, gosh, you know, it, it might be, uh, I'm just trying to think, um, you know, my, my wife grew up Italian and, you know, she's still on occasion, you know, 
loves Italian food, but we hardly ever eat any pasta anymore. And that used to be a routine staple. So on you know rare occasions, she may make some kind of Italian dish, which has a little bit of, you know, uh, el dente pasta. But that, you know, is really the exception. And, you know, and I do miss the nice Italian meals, but, you know, it's just not worth it anymore because I know how I'm going to feel the next day after eating something like that. It's just going to weigh me down. I'm going to sleep poorly and frequently I get a stomach ache. So, you know, it's it doesn't happen that much anymore. And And for the most part, I really don't miss it. Yeah, that's so funny because I hear the same thing from everybody that, that you know, you used to like all these meals and now you're like, oh, it's not even worth it. That's what I say too. And and I know people who are on a kind of a regular diet, high carb diet are, are thinking, how's that even possible? But I know that like you were saying, I didn't know how I actually felt until I quit eating this stuff. And then I was like, wow, you know, now I have, I'm I'm like pretty ketogenic now and I wake up, I have so much energy and uh, oh. I'm not weighed down throughout the day. And it's so much different now. It's so much different. And I think the other thing too is, you know, this is not a calorie restricted diet. I can eat whatever I want, you know, within the, you know, low carb realm. I have no limit on, you know, really what I eat. And I, I, I maintaining my weight is absolutely easy. I mean, I never gain any weight. I just eat what I as much as I want, as long as it's following the whole low carb philosophy. And it's, uh, it's very, very easy. And, you know, I would highly recommend it for somebody who hasn't tried it before to give it a chance, because I think they'll be truly amazed at uh, the results. Yeah, I recommend just just skip breakfast once in a while to get kind of get started. And, yeah, and then sure. uh, just keep your carbs low and, and see how it goes. But I wanted to uh, ask you a question. So for the listeners, we were both lucky enough. Uh, Mark was a speaker at the Low Carb Breckenridge in Colorado, which was a pretty amazing weekend. You know, a lot of great speakers. And during your speech, you were talking about the different shapes of women. Yes. And, yes. and how the apple versus the pear shape. I thought that was fascinating of where the fat ends up in the different shapes of women. So kind of walk us through that. I wish I wish we had the visuals because they were really cool, but you yeah. You'll have to describe them. Sure. Well, if you can just kind of envision the apple, and that's kind of the android configuration or the male type pattern. And that's where the that fat kind of um, accumulates over the central portion of our belly, kind of at the level of the umbilicus, about halfway in between kind of your lower rib and your upper pelvis, you know, kind of the iliac crest. And that really is this toxic form of visceral fat that I was talking about earlier. And because not everybody's going to go get CT and MRI, one of the default ways we look to measure that is just with a tape measure. And if we do a tape measure at that level and that number is 40 centimeters or over, or excuse me, 40 inches or over for men or 35 inches for women, you know that you have visceral adiposity. And it's a kind of a surrogate marker for this visceral fat that we can actually visually see with imaging. So that's really the, the big problem where the fat is. Now, in women, they tend to have a more pear-shaped configuration, and their fat accumulates lower down, kind of in the hips and the buttocks area, and that tends to be much more metabolically safe. That doesn't have the same cardiovascular risk and in inflammation and the cytokine uh, secretion that this visceral fat has. But now as women go through menopause and their estrogen levels go down, they actually start to develop more and more of this apple-shaped configuration. So 
that's kind of um, those are kind of the two main uh, areas where fat is deposited. Some people are kind of hybrids. Um, there are some women who not only kind of have this pear shape, but those who are perhaps under a lot of stress and have elevated cortisol levels, as we were talking about before, they can also have a fair bit of deposition into that visceral compartment and have a combination of both. And then there's kind of an unusual phenotype called TOFI, or thin on the outside and fat on the inside. And those are people who actually have a normal BMI or body mass index, which is a kind of a generic marker for whether you're overweight or obese or not. So these people come out normal with a BMI, but when you actually look on imaging, they have too much visceral fat. And then when you do blood samples, their inflammatory markers are elevated because of that. So it's a subtype where you know you, you can't really appreciate it without some form of imaging, but it's a metabolic risk factor that they may not recognize. So those are kind of the two biggies, the apple and the pear distribution and kind of what they mean. So on the TOFI, the statement of saying, well, I'm skinny, so I'm healthy, doesn't hold then always. That, that is correct. Well, we are uh, nearing the end, but I want to get a couple more things out. What would be your top two or three tips that you would give somebody that is maybe the apple or the pear or, you know, struggling with their weight? What would you say is a good way to start? Yeah. You know, people ask me that frequently, too. I say if there's one thing you could do to tonight or tomorrow, one thing you could do, get rid of the soda pop. I think the soda pop is absolutely toxic and it's toxic on so many levels, but it's because it's this high fructose corn syrup that we know can only be metabolized by the liver. Sugar can be metabolized by every cell, but fructose can only be metabolized by the liver. And that's why it is so toxic on the liver. So if you can get rid of the soda pop, that would be a great first start. Then the next one I would say is many people would benefit from a, um, a period of time off of any kind of wheat or gluten related products. And those are all tend to be processed wheat, uh, processed bleached flour, which all tend to just markedly increase your um, glucose blood levels. And remember, bread is the almost the same or sometimes even worse than just eating tablespoons of sugar based on its surface area and how it's absorbed. So if you can get really rid of kind of the generic white bread products, and even wheat bread is not a whole lot better. It's basically colored white bread. That can make a dramatic change, not only on the sugar level, but a lot of people are sensitive to gluten as well. So you're kind of eliminating two things at once. So those would be the, I think, really the two big things. Number one, get rid of the soda pop and then take a period of time, a week or two if possible, off of any kind of gluten-containing products and processed sugar. And I think um, you're going to feel better. You'll probably be you're impressed that, you know, you're going to lose weight just because as you get rid of the carbohydrate, the water follows that. And so many people, at least early on in the first week or two, that's why you lose so much weight is because it's the water that was being held onto by the carbohydrate. After that, it gets a little more challenging to lose weight, but not if you're following a high fat program. So those would be my two big suggestions that I think people would find um, useful. Yeah, those are great tips. And you grew up in Minnesota, is that correct? I did. Okay, so um, I lived down in South for in Alabama, Mississippi for like 10 years. Down South, they call it soda. In Iowa, they call it pop. And yeah. you call it soda pop. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's just a hybrid. That's right. <laughs> yeah. um, I just hey. want to point that out. 
Uh, well, you got that right. Yeah. Well, anyway, you spell it or pronounce it, it's all bad news. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's always the theme is every time I ask that question, always number one is sugar and soda. Always. Uh, yeah. uh, to get that out of your diet. So, uh, you do some health coaching on the side. So if somebody wants to get a hold of you and work with you or look at some of your content, how would they do that? Yeah, um, I'm at um, my website is called Vitality Visions and just kind of, you know, spells how it pronounced Vitality Visions uh, dot com. And um, or people can just email me at Dr. B, D-R-B at Vitality dot com. And I'm, I, I'm doing health coaching I'm doing a fair bit of blood testing along with that. If people have any imaging that they've had done and they want it reviewed or to discuss or just want to be educated on what the films mean, uh, that's what I uh, offer as well. And uh, just um, trying to, like I say, uh, promote the gospel and get the word out and help people make these tough changes in their lives that um, that uh, can be very meaningful to them but are, are very challenging. Uh, so, if, you know, people are looking for an open ear uh you know, I'm uh, certainly available. Yeah, that's that's great. So, And we'll put those in the show notes so everybody has the links. Um, I just want to say you did a great job in Breckenridge. So hopefully hopefully you're heading back there next year. Well, I would love to. Yeah, it was a, it was a thrill being out there. It really was. You're meeting people like yourself and then the, you know, some of the authors, Nina Teicholz and Zoe Harkum and, you know, so many um you know, inspiring people that are, are leading the uh, the charge into kind of a, a new era of uh, health and, uh, you know, trying to dispel some of the myths that have been with us for so long. Yeah. And I was impressed at how many doctors were there. There was quite a few. Yes, there were. Which, yes, there were. which was cool. I think I was the only hospital CEO there. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, yeah, you're a trailblazer too there. Big <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, one last question. Did, did the altitude affect you? Well, you know, surprisingly, it did a little bit, and I found that a little odd in that I had spent actually a year out in um, Edwards, which is kind of closer to Vail and Beaver Creek, but that's more at about 7,000 uh, foot elevation, and Breckenridge was, you know, I think it's closer to nine, if I'm not like, mistaken. I looked it up, 9,600. Yeah, and so, yeah, I, I could feel it. I mean, I could get a little headaches and, a, you know, hydration and, you know, the whole thing that, uh yeah, it made a difference. Yeah, but, I don't uh, think the cold helped because it was cold. Yeah, it was. It was cold. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I definitely had the headaches and the cramps and stuff. And we did the oxygen bar, and that that oh, actually, and that actually helped. I got rid of the headache. Yeah. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah. Well, Doctor Berger, thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been uh, very, very interesting, and I, I hope people reach out to you because uh, you are definitely a leader in radiology. I know a lot of radiologists, and you are. I, I refer to you now as the low carb radiologist. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, that's very cool. So thank you for well, being on the show. Well, you're very welcome. I'm happy to be here. And, um, you know, good luck to you and all your endeavors uh, at the hospital as well. And you too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for being with us today, and we hope that you are on the road to your successful low-carb lifestyle. Become a leader in your health and a leader in life. Check us out at www.thelowcarbleader.com. And remember to join Dan again next time on the Low Carb Leader Podcast.